Please take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15 as we return to this beautiful and beloved text. John 15, 1 through 11, and generally, I only put one verse kind of in the title, but we're just kind of sitting and camping in John 15, 1 through 11 for a while. Page 901 in the Pew Bible. So we have abide again. This is part two of this passage. We'll see how many parts there'll be. Uh, Surely, it's all right to abide for a while in this passage that tells us to abide. Last time, I titled the sermon... Abide in I am. I am probably a little too proud of that title. There is the command for us to do something. Abide. Well, somewhere in and then someone the I am. And we spent most of our time last time there on the who. On this seventh I am identity statement of Christ. I am the vine. A claim to be God himself. A claim to be life itself. And we have to start there. For it's the who that determines the what and the how. Who Christ is, is everything. And thus, who you are, if he's correct, who you are is entirely determined by him. Your relationship to him, your response to him, your connection to him. Just as a branch lives only as it is connected to the vine and draws its life from the vine, so too do people live only as they are connected to Christ and draw their life from Christ. So are you alive? And do you abide? It's that word that we want to seek to further understand today. Abide. What does that mean? What does it really mean to abide in Christ? Jesus uses this word ten times in these first ten verses. So there can be no question what our passage is about. It is about abide We too then must be about abide, for you could argue that this is really the sum total of the Christian life. This is a perfect summary of what we are called to do, and yet, I assume that many of us struggle to understand what this really means and what we are to do. I think a lot of our problems could potentially be rooted here. We are all of us excellent actors. We are all of us masters of masking what's going on. On the inside, we are all of us probably struggling far more than we would like to admit. And like all these people sitting around us to know, we are all of us probably lacking in the experiencing of full joy department. Good news. That is the very thing that the Christ of life is offering to us here. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What a promise that is. That, that's, that's what we're after. That's what we're pursuing here. How's your joy? Full? The very joy of God himself? Yes? No? Well, then I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that I'm here, because I needed this. I needed to study this. I needed to keep learning this, because I want the very joy of Christ. Full joy. How wonderful then that he lays it out for us here and connects it very clearly to abiding in him. And all I want to do this morning is to try and draw out how clearly he connects abiding in him to the word, to his word, these words. I hope to hammer home how necessary the word is to all of this, how powerful the word is, how wonderful the word is. Abide in me, let my words abide in you, joy. That's our focus. I'm increasingly desperate to convince myself and all of you how necessary and sufficient and powerful and life-giving God's word is and to encourage you just to try it, just to try it, and then to more and more give yourself to it entirely and with great zeal. And so as we consider the word again this morning, consider with me as we open how formative words are. Consider babies, for example. Consider how magical it is that all these little non-talking persons over here, for a whole year they can't talk. What's wrong with these babies, right? They can't even talk for a whole year. What's going on there? All they do is cry and do all of these other things. But then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, they start speaking words. And it's a wonder. We're enjoying this wonder with Vera right now. 
And I am proud to officially announce finally from the pulpit, I've been saving this, that, that I am now five for five. All five girls, all first word, dada. <laughs> dada, obviously. Success, five for five. I must be a pretty great dada that all five of these mute little persons can so recognize my greatness that they choose their very first word to be my name, Dada. It took me way too long, I think. It was around child three, maybe, to figure out what was really going on, to figure out that um, the reason that I have been five for five on Dada was obviously entirely because of Mama, right? It had nothing to do with my greatness but her goodness, as she spends so much time with them lovingly and patiently, repeatedly speaking to those precious little girls, dada, 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 again and again and again, until they imitate and answer and respond with dada. See, this is going to be important for today. All words are ultimately answering words. All words are response to other words. We are all of us spoken to before we speak. And the words that are spoken to us are foundational and formative. There's been all kinds of studies about how important the quantity and quality of words spoken to babies and young children are. Parents, talk to your children and read to your children constantly. There's an infamous study back in the 90s that's often referred to as the 30 million word Gap, And it argues that the children from high-income families have millions upon millions of more words spoken to them in the first couple of years of life than children from low-income families. Now, there's problems with that study. The specific number is hard to justify. Uh, it's controversial these days. But there's many other studies, and there's no debate that there are few things more important for the development of a little life than the words that are spoken to that little life. Those words, their quantity and quality, play a huge role in shaping that life. The life of a child is, in large part, dependent on and determined by the words spoken to the child. Life is dependent on and determined by word. You obviously know where I'm going. Your life, the Christian life, and your experience of that life, the peace, the contentment, the joy, is dependent on and determined by the word. You cannot abide apart from the word. Abide in me. How? Let my words abide in you. That's as far as we're going to get today. Just two simple, hopefully simple points. Abide in me, and I'm going to argue, I want you to think of that as constant communion with Christ and pursuing constant communion with Christ. So that's point number one. And then the how is point number two, as my words abide in you. We do this through the consistent consideration of Christ's words. And so the sermon is really simple. You will experience life and joy and peace only as you abide in Christ through his word. All those things that we desperately want, life and joy and peace, our experience of those things is dependent on our abiding in Christ through his word. Let's see if we can find that in the text. Let me read it for you first. We are going to focus largely on verse 7, but I want to read the whole of verses 1 through 11 because we'll be looking at a lot of it, and we'll come back to it for at least a third time next week and wrap it up. But I'm going to read for you starting in John 15, verse 1 through verse 11. Please pay attention, for this is what God himself wants to say to you today. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pause. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's spirit to help us in this time. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, we believe that we abide in Christ only by grace through faith. And that is accomplished in us by the working of that Holy Spirit. The Spirit who works through this word that abides in us as we find life in Christ. And so we ask now that the Spirit would do his work through this word. We have just read that apart from you we can do nothing. We cannot even preach the word or hear the word apart from you. And so, Father, we are utterly and entirely dependent upon you in this time. Father, do for us um, far beyond what we expect. And do uh, through me far beyond what I am capable. Father, we want to love Jesus. And we want to love him more. And we want to pursue him. We want to understand what it really means to abide in him and do all that we do for your glory. Father, we have so much to learn. We thank you that you have given us your living and active word through which we learn those things and become like Jesus. So help us, please. Help the preaching and teaching of your word. Show us Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. All right, point number one is abide in me again. Last time we just had two points. It was I am and abide in. And we spent much of our time focusing first on who Christ is. He is I am. As he opens this chapter with his seventh I am identity statement. I am the vine. And it is as we are continually confronted with who Christ is. That by the grace of God, we're, we're slowly and oh so painfully slowly sometimes, if you're like me, we're, we're slowly transformed into who we are to be. So I thought it would be helpful here at the beginning to briefly consider something about Christ that we may not be as familiar with that hopefully helps us to better understand what it means to abide in him. I was reading Thomas Watson on joy this week, and he says joy, true joy, is something better felt than expressed. And I think there's something similar going on with abiding, but we want to try and do the best that we can to express what this is. We've talked about the Greek word now for abide, meno, M-E-N-O. This is one of John's favorite words. He is the apostle of abide, and we saw that the word simply means to remain or to stay, or to continue. Emma and I were discussing this week if we were outdoor people or indoor people, and she declared that she's very much an outdoor person. I, on the other hand, am an avid indoorsman. I like, I like running, I like the occasional foray into creation, but then get me back inside. I like to abide inside. I like to rest and remain, continue, and persist, linger, and loiter, stick, and stay at home. I happily abide in my home with my girls. That, that's all the word means. And so we're seeking to sort out what it means then to remain, to stay, to continue, to rest in Christ. Last time, we considered the closest uses of John's of this word elsewhere in John in chapter 14. I want to consider briefly with you John's first use of this same word as we sort this out. This was helpful for me. Flip back to John 1.32. Back to the beginning of the book. John 1.32. Remember, there are two main Johns in John. There is John the writer, and there is John the witness. The author of our book, John, is one of the apostles, and he opens writing much about the other John. We generally call him John the Baptist. He's never called John the Baptist in this gospel. His role is more witness. He's John the witness. And look at what this John bears witness to in 132. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained. That's our word. That's the same word, minnow. It abided on him. 
Look at verse 33. He repeats it. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. Again, same word, minnow, abide. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. First two uses of this word that's used ten times in our passage. And I think these two in particular are helpful in our understanding of abiding. The Holy Spirit abided on and in Christ. And this is a good time to consider this as we've just left Christ's first explicit teaching on the person and work of the Spirit in chapter 14. And he's going to pick that back up and start to do it again at the end of this chapter. But I didn't understand this for a long time, and I found this very helpful when it started to, to, to dawn on me. And it was, it was through the writings of, of John Owen and, and Sinclair Ferguson that I came to understand this. But I think that we may somewhat misunderstand how Jesus did what he did. I know sometimes it kind of feels like he was cheating. Well, he's God, of course. Of course he did all those miraculous things. Of course, he lived a life of contented, sinless perfection. Of course, he never lusted or was never angry or never had sinful thoughts. He's God. You know, it's not really fair. But it seems that's not exactly how it worked. And that's why the Gospels give so much attention to the Holy Spirit throughout the course of Christ's ministry, though we tend to give this very little attention these days. Nobody writes about this. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke 1.35, that the man Jesus was conceived. It was the Holy Spirit that descended on the man Jesus at his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, Luke 3.22. Then Luke 4.1, this seems to particularly be Luke's emphasis. In Luke 4.1, we read Jesus full of the Holy Spirit led by the Spirit to be tested and tempted by Satan. We know that Christ is victorious. He succeeds where the man, Adam, failed. Then in Luke 4.14, we're told that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. And then Luke 4.18, Jesus officially announces the beginning of his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth as he takes up the scroll of Isaiah 61 and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You see, as as sinful fallen man, we required a man to come in and do for us what we failed to do. We needed a man to keep and fulfill the covenant of works by perfectly obeying God's law for us in our place. And the man, Jesus Christ, did just that for us. And I believe that all that he did, all the divine, all the miraculous he did as a man, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was John Owen who argued originally that the only thing that the Son, the divine second person of the Trinity, immediately did was the assumption of the human nature. He united uh, himself with the human uh, nature. Everything else Jesus Christ did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. All the supernatural, the signs, the healings, the walking on water, the raising the dead to life, the source of that divine power was not immediately his own divine nature, but it came mediated to him through the Holy Spirit. Listen to Peter in Acts 2.22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. You see that Peter emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, the man who's attested by God, who does all these things through Jesus. Not that the man himself did them, but that God did, him, did them through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. The point of all that is that Jesus did what he did in perfect reliance on the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit's power working through Jesus. Yes, of course, Jesus was very much God. John goes to great lengths to make that clear. The Word was God. Jesus has just said, I am, meaning I am God. But the beauty of the Gospel, the whole point of the Gospel, is that God has become a man. He has taken on flesh to take up our position and place to do all that we were supposed to do as men. And he does that perfectly for us. And he does it all in perfect reliance on the Holy Spirit. 
And that's why it's hugely significant that we go from John 1.32, the Spirit abiding in Christ, to our passage and 15.4, and you abiding in Christ. I find this such a helpful illustration and explanation of what it means to abide. The Spirit so took up residence in Christ that all that he did, he did in total and complete reliance on the Spirit. He was in constant communion with the Spirit. He lived in total dependence on the Spirit. He was never separated from that Spirit. He never did anything without reference to the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to abide in Christ. And that will be really important next week as we come back to consider what it means to bear fruit, what that fruit is, and and how we bear it. But the good news is that if all of this is true, if Christ did all that he did in reliance on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Helper that he just told us in 1416 will be with us forever. Verse 17, the Spirit who dwells, same word, who abides with you and will be in you. That means that we have access to the very person, the very same power that Christ had access to. We have the same one in us who was in him. Not so that we can wow people with all the same miraculous signs. Look what I can do. No, we know what those were for. We don't need those anymore. But so that we can be like him, conformed to his image, bearing the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, and on and on and on. What hope we have if Christ is doing all that he does by abiding in the spirit and that same spirit now abides in us. So come back next week for bearing fruit. But for us then, to abide in Christ is going to look something like how Christ relied on the Spirit throughout the course of his ministry. And consider the metaphor. I am the vine, you are the branches. Susan, I'm glad she's not here. Susan's always yelling at me for wearing my contacts way too long. For me, monthlies work really well as yearlies or yearlies plus. Don't, don't tell the eye doctors. Sorry. But when I do finally order some contacts, I will contact Constant Contacts. It's a website. It's wonderful wordplay. But that's abiding. Abiding is constant contact. The branch is in constant contact with the vine. This contact is in constant contact with my eye. I can see you because everything that I'm doing is being filtered through the lens of that contact. I can't see anything without it, but through that I see everything. This is constant contact. The vine has the life for the branch to experience the life. It has to be in constant contact with the vine. Think of abiding in Christ as constant contact with Christ. And Christ is a person, obviously. He is the person. And so constant contact with that person will result in constant communion with Christ. I want you to think of abiding in Christ as constant communion with Christ. It is an active, attentive, intentional taking in and receiving of his spiritual life. Remember, that's what all seven of these I am statements are ultimately about. They're all about life. Christ is life. We find life only in him in connection and communication with him. And so because Christ loves us, he commands us, abide in me. But in case all that abiding still sounds like a chore, uh, laborious to you, maybe it doesn't sound all that appealing, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. This helps explain the goodness of this. Look at what he says there. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Remember, it's at the baptism that we just considered as the Spirit descends to abide on the Son that the Father declares. This is a rare occasion when we hear the voice of the Father. So this is hugely significant. And he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Son is the beloved of the Father, the God who is love. right? The God who epitomizes it, who is love personified, who loves Perfectly, and he perfectly loves and delights in the Son. We would be wise 
to be well pleased with the one in whom the all-wise God is well pleased. But the point to see for now is that this beloved son himself, as the father perfectly loves me, so in the same way he's drawing a parallel, so I perfectly love you. So I perfectly seek and work out all things for your good. I delight and enjoy you. So abide in that love. We're all of us desperate to be loved. And it is miserable when we don't have it or we're not experiencing it. We're not finding it. But look at this. Look at what's offered to you here. The Son himself, the one who is love, says, I love you the same way that the Father perfectly loves you. Abide in me. Abide in my love. That means that Christ our Lord is commanding us, and his commandments are not burdensome, he is commanding us the very thing that is our highest good, seeking and finding and pursuing our highest good in him. And so abiding in Christ is constant communion with Christ. And he is calling us here to actively and intentionally and attentively pursue that personal, intimate, joyful communion with him. How? Point number two, as my words abide in you. Let's go back to the text. We're going to consider the keeping my commandments aspect of this from verse 10 next week, right? Commandments are words, and there we'll see how central the keeping and obeying of those words is to bearing fruit. But apart from that, there are three other explicit mentions of Christ's words in our passage. And remember the opening illustration. The words spoken to a child go a long way in determining the future and the life of that child. Parents, speak so many words to your babies and your children and speak words of affection and delight and joy and affirmation and gospel. Speak the gospel words to them. But my argument here is that the words spoken to you, Christian, go the entire way in determining your future and life. Look at verse 3. We made this important distinction last time. Jesus says in verse 3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remember, that's in the context of this metaphor of the vine. That means that the word is, is, is like the life of the vine that, that pulsates through the branches, giving them their life. And so here in verse 3, we're talking about the initial work of the word. It is the word that cleanses. It is the word that saves. God saves his people based on the life and death of his son by the work of the Holy Spirit through the means of his word. Quite simply, God's word saves God's people. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding, that's our word, same word, through the living and abiding word of God. We probably know 2 Timothy 3.16 well. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But don't miss the previous verse, 2 Timothy 3.15. The sacred writings, that is the word, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We've had lots of weddings. It's great. Another one coming up next month. Husbands, in this text where Christ commands us to let his word abide in us, husbands, let Ephesians 5 abide in you. You cannot do uh, Christian marriage, husbands, without Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. We just considered Christ's perfect love for us. Hey, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? And gave himself up for her. Again, it says husbands die. As Christ died for the life of his bride, husbands die to yourself for the life of your bride. Husbands, love your wives like that. But we're here for verse 26. Ephesians 5, 26. Why did Christ give himself up for her? that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's the word that washes 
John 17, 17 will be there soon. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So it's the word that washes. It's the word that sanctifies. It's the word that saves. It's the word that does everything. What a living and active, what a powerful, life-giving, death-defeating word. How does that work? We know it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go back to John chapter 3. We know that it's, I'm not turning there, you don't need to turn there, but that's where we see it. This, this living and active word here, God's word written, preserved for us, it reveals to us who our God is as creator and Lord in his glory and holiness. And then in so doing, it then reveals who we are as rebel and enemy in our evil and sinfulness. And then, by the grace of God, it doesn't stop there. It also then reveals to us who Christ is and what he has done for us in our place in his life, death, and resurrection to save us from our sins and to return us to this God who is life. That's the good news. That's the gospel that Paul says is the power of God for salvation. And good news is it's it's words. It's a declaration of words of who God is and what he has done. Done, And so it's as this word is proclaimed that the spirit works to give new hearts, to move us from death to life and to open our eyes that we may see the all glorious God of grace and to run from our sin and to run to him. Listen, preaching and teaching God's word can be the most discouraging thing in the world, right? It's it's also the most delightful thing. It's the greatest and highest privilege. It can be the most discouraging thing in the world, What did I just do? Nothing. Nothing happened. Everybody's asleep. Nothing accomplished. What what was the point of all of that work? What's what's the point? Why do we have to get up and start over tomorrow and do the same thing again? It's only because of what we believe God's word does. In the, the wisdom of God, he chose to work through the foolishness of man. And so our only hope as preachers and teachers is we come back to that word again and again and again and seek to do the best that we can to exposit and explain, to open it up and expose the Christ that is in that word to you, and then to pray and to trust that the Lord is going to work through that word. That's our only hope, is that the Spirit works through the word. The Spirit saves his people through the word. You have been washed already. You are clean. And that has to come before anything that is about to follow. To abide in Christ is first to be born again by his grace, to believe in him and be saved. It is first our wonderful, gracious, saving union with Christ, all worked by the Spirit through the word. So to abide, you must first be cleansed by the word. Now, look at verse 7. Now here we go. Here's the second explicit mention of the word in our text. Now we move from the objective to the subjective, from union to communion, from knowing God more to enjoying God. Verse 7, if you abide in me, how, Jesus, just tell us how, if my words abide in you. That's how. It is only as that living and active word abides in us that we live both objectively and subjectively that means that to abide in christ in this sense is to increasingly live a life regulated entirely by the word of christ so it is it is that constant communion with christ point number one pursued through the word it is for this this word his word to abide in you it is to be so consumed and controlled by Christ's word consumed and controlled by Christ's claims if you want more alliteration to be so consumed by them that it becomes the driving dynamic or force of your life the result being that you increasingly believe the words obey the words live in light of them love the words And most importantly, love the Lord of the words. How does that happen? We know it's only by the Spirit. But we know that the Spirit generally works through means. And he works through the means of the word. And so this is only possible. It is only as this word gets in you. And it is as that word gets in you and you engage with it and take it in continually and consistently and intentionally and actively give to it great 
attention. Hebrews 2.1 again, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You see that? We can drift simply due to lack of attention. And so I encourage you last time to consider abiding in terms of attention. I mentioned a whole, uh, I mentioned a book a while back titled The Attention Merchants, which is about everything, how everything on the internet and on that phone in your pocket and on that social media that you're wasting your life with, how all of it exists to capture and commodify your attention. That's entirely what it's for. That's all that it's trying to do, to capture and commodify your attention and to then profit off of your attention. And so the subtitle of the book is The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. That's abiding. The author writes, when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to, whether by choice or by default. This guy's not a believer. He gets the basic concept. What are you paying attention to? To abide in Christ is to pay attention to Christ. It is to give your attention to Christ, and to give your attention to Christ is to give your attention to Christ's word. And so, come to think of it, as we're seeking to better wrap our minds around this metaphor of the vine and what it means to abide in Christ, our phones are a great place to start. We sometimes wonder what it means to pray without ceasing. How could we possibly do that? I could never, could never do that. We're wondering right now what it means to be in constant communion with Christ. How could we possibly do that? What does that mean? Well, consider your cell phone. Consider your constant communion with that little screen. Now, how, many, how often have you looked at it today already? Some statistics. Who knows how accurate they are? I don't know. The average American checks their phone 344 times a day. That's every four minutes. Spending an average of two hours and 54 minutes on it per day. Three hours of your day just on one of the screens. Check your screen time app. Over 70% of Americans check it within the first two minutes of waking up. There is no better simple switch in discipline that I can recommend to you than don't do that. Don't open it up. Don't look at it. Don't start your day with that. Over 70% are uncomfortable being away from their phone and so on and so on and so on. The statistics go. We are very much abiding in our phones and they in us. We are in constant contact and communion with them, giving them our constant attention. And when we're not actively using them, we're actively thinking about them. What was that last notification? Like, I'm talking to this person. Do you think I can sneak a look at this to see what this notification was without that person knowing? Is it rude for me to sit here on my phone while all these people are talking? What if I miss something important? We even experience phantom cell phone buzzes that we're so attuned and attentive to our phones. Abiding is attention. But we have no problem giving much attention to certain things. The call here is to abide in Christ and to increasingly give him much attention. And the only way to do that is to give his word much attention. We've already heard the words of the father to his beloved son. Well, we hear those same words a second time at Christ's transfiguration. Henry taught through this a few weeks ago. Matthew 17, 5, the father says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's the Christian life right there. I mean, that's it. That's what it means to abide in him and to let his words abide in you. Listen to him. And it is to listen in the fullest sense of the term. It is to give attention to those words, to accept and assent, give assent to those words, and then to apply those words to your life by living in light of them. How much attention are you giving to the word of the Christ who claims to be life itself? Sometimes it could be helpful. It could be helpful to sit down and take an assessment of how we are using our time, sort of like making a time budget. All of us are busy, but all of us have the same amount of time, and all of us are sometimes using that time poorly. I give a lot of time to reading. When I started to add a lot of time to running, I realized I did not have the time to do both of these things to the degree that I would like. So then I realized, oh, I'll listen to books while I run, right? So I, I figured out how to better get those things together. Another personal example, I love video games. I really do. I grew up 
with video games. I think it was 1989 that a woman in my dad's church, Lynn Workman, gave us a Nintendo Entertainment System. We could never have afforded that. This is a big deal. Pastor's family, small church. She gave us a trampoline and a Nintendo. I, was, I don't know what was going on. Or what this, it was very kind. But I was hooked. Hooked from the start. And I gave much attention over the decades to follow to video games. Listen, some of that within reason isn't entirely bad. But it was about five years ago that I realized that I had a problem. Because there's these stupid cell phones. I loved the ease and the access of having various dumb little games on my phone right there in my pocket or like literally just sitting on my desk while I'm working. I didn't even have to give them too much time at once, just a few minutes here and there, set it and forget it, and then come back to it later. But I did start to realize that it very much was dividing my attention as I was thinking about this thing and what did I do next when I get to that game and go back to it um, and then thinking about it, even while I'm working on sermons that I'm writing uh, for you about how great God is. And then I sat back one day and started to add up the few minutes here and there throughout the day, and I realized, oh, I'm giving a lot more time to these stupid things than I thought that I was giving to those things. And for me, the only solution, the only solution that I finally figured out that could work is I had to cut them out completely. Completely. No more video games on my phone. I cannot do it. I have proven that I cannot handle it. Maybe you can. I can't. So no video games on the phone. I still love video games. I love playing Nintendo with my girls. We played Kirby last night. But we try to make our tech time a social thing and not a solitary thing. But I wonder if you, like me, are giving far more of your time and attention than you think to things that are ultimately worthless. And I wonder if some of our struggles with a feeling of meaninglessness and and worthlessness is in some part due to the fact that we continue to fill ourselves with and give attention to that which is meaningless and worthless. Christ is inviting us here to give our attention to that which is eternally meaningful and of infinite worth. Abide is attention. It is then intentionally seeking to pay attention to what we are paying attention to and then seeking to intentionally think more on Christ himself and the things of God, the things that are life. I'm trying to convince you and compel you and myself to stop paying so much attention to and to stop thinking so much about that which ultimately does not matter at all and pay more attention to and think more about that which matters eternally, which is ultimately God himself as he is revealed in Christ. And we can only do that through the word. What I'm calling here is constant consideration of Christ's words. It's not that complicated. We know how to constantly consider our phones and other things. We're we're seeking to uh, pursue a constant consideration of Christ's words. Next week is fruitfulness. That's Psalm 1, the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Well, how does it do that? How do we find blessing and bear fruit? You know this. Psalm 1-2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Day and night. That's attention. That's abiding. Psalm 119 is all about the word and abiding. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. That's attention and abiding. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I pray that every time before I open up and read God's word. That's attention. That's abiding. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, you will meditate on what you love. I'm already thinking about my run tomorrow. Jeremy and I have a race coming up on Saturday. It's already on my mind. I like thinking about these things. I, I fill my mind and, and fix my mind. I'm going to beat him, by the way. I feel my mind and I, I fix my mind on these things that I love and I care about. We think what we, uh, about what we care about. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That becomes less weird the more that we start to actually love God's law and understand it for what it really is. Attention and abiding. These living and active words, Matthew 4, 4, that Jesus tells us are the spiritual bread on which we live. And so that means that you must have some strategy for the consideration of that word. You must have some plan to read it 
to take it in, to think about it, to memorize it, to pray it, to speak it, for you cannot abide without the word. There's nothing more important. There's nothing better than abiding in Christ. God's word works. It will not return to him void, he promises. It does wonderful things, but it's got to get in you to do those things. How are you going to let Christ's word abide in you? For me, one of the simplest helps, because it's so easy for me to read and run and leave and forget entirely, is to just to make sure you're finding one thing in your reading. I'm going to find one verse, one concept, one thing that this tells me about God and his grace and his goodness and write it down and take it with you and commit to coming back to look at that at lunch or on your break or sometime later in the day to seek to more consistently and continually abide in his word. Start with it, but then find some way to engage. Write down one verse and then just come back to it and say, Lord, help me to understand this. Help me to live in light of this. It doesn't have to be complicated. Something simple. For me, right now, my current focus is to be intentional about uh, my attention. To be to be intentional about my intention. Right now, my focus is scripture memory. I have always struggled with memorization. My brain does not work. I have no memory. It's really hard for me to memorize scripture, and so I have to really work at it. But I have been finding the work rewarding as the word within me then starts to do its work in me. It happened recently. I'll occasionally, by, uh, in my own sin, I'll, I'll let the grumpiness out, right? I'll get frustrated. I'll be short with the girls. I'll hit the lights and say something stupid, like, not another word out of this room. It's something dumb, right? You always you'd say dumb things as parents. You say something dumb, and then you, you, you leave, and then it's quiet, and then you're doing the dishes, and then you're thinking, and then 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Love is patient and kind. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not insist on its own way. You see, but God's word does insist on its own way. And so then, as that word abides in me, that has now been hidden in my heart, the spirit then takes and starts to poke and to bring to light and bring to mind, I start to see myself for who I am and my stupidity and my sin, and I hesitate, and I'm like, I need a few more dishes, you know, I got, I'm trying to help, I do dishes. and then I finally have to crawl back upstairs and apologize to my four daughters, which is not a humbling and fun thing to have to do these little people but it's good for me and it's good for them and it's all because of what God's word is and does as it abides in God's sinful and silly people hey you were just irritable and rude oh by the way remember that verse that you just memorized don't be irritable and don't be rude ah apologize to the kids church the word can work wonders in you right now I'm trying to memorize Ephesians 1 it's Grammatically, it's so hard. The first 11 verses are like one sentence, and I'm having such a hard time with it. But I've been so blessed with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. And so when I am tempted to self-pity, as I am, to focus on what I think I lack or what little blessing I might have, well, there is God's word abiding in me to remind me, hey, every spiritual blessing blessing. I have that in Christ. And it's learning to use those precious promises of God that can then transform your experience of the often very difficult and disappointing circumstances of life. It is learning to trust the providence of God that everything is in the hands of your gracious heavenly father who loves you and is working all things together for your good and can transform your experience of everything. You know what you just sang before we started this sermon? You sang, whate'er my God ordains is right. You're a liar. (laughs) I'm a liar. How little do we actually believe that fact? Whatever he ordains, whatever he ordains, I would never complain. I would never be grumpy. I would never be miserable if I actually believed that whatever he ordains is right. His holy will abideth and I will be still whatever he does. Do you believe that whate'er your God ordains is right? And not just right, but good. And for your good. As my Father has loved you, so do I. As my Father's loved me, so do I love you.
And you see, it's, it's more and more as you are filled with this living and active word that reveals him to you, that also then relates him to you, that you start to learn a little bit more what it means to start to, to commune with him and enjoy him and find great satisfaction and rest and peace in your soul, not in your circumstances, but in him. And again, that's what he says in verse 11, the third explicit mention of Christ's word. There was a whole third point here. It's gone. But let me close with this. This is why I commend this to you. And this is why. This is why scripture memory to me is hard and I really don't like it sometimes. But I'm doing it pursuing this and believing this. This is why giving yourself to attentive attention uh, to the Lord is worth it. Look at verse 11 and I'm done. These things I have spoken to you. That is words. These words that I have spoken. I've spoken my words to you that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. What an offer. There's nothing, there's, no, there's nothing better than that. The perfect God, the perfect God of perfect joy, offering you his perfect joy. What if we believed that and pursued that and trusted that he actually brought that about through his word? But if we are content with a little Christ and a little spirit and a little word, well, then no wonder we enjoy little peace and little joy and little hope and little love and have little effect on those around us. He's saying, come to me. Every, give, give, give everything to me. This is what I'm offering. This is what I want to do uh, for you. Realize what you have by grace in union with him and then do everything that you can to pursue more and more communion with him. And do it by faith, giving yourself to his living and active word, letting it fill you and fix you and shape you and sustain you and satisfy you. And do it all ultimately in pursuit of him. The I am who is our life. Do you believe this? Then abide in him. Pursue constant communion with this Christ. How? As his words abide in you. Pursue constant consideration of this Christ's wonderful words that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, there are wonderful and amazing promises contained in your word, particularly in this word that we have read this morning. Father, we ask that you would do verse 11. We ask that your joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. We confess how often that is not the case. We confess how often uh, it is easier for us to commune with other things and to commune with the things of the world and to pursue our, our joy in the things of the world. But Father, I know that for me that's ultimately because I'm still learning what it means to pursue and find those things only in you. So I ask that you would help us, Lord. Help us to abide in Christ. Help us to commit ourselves and our time and our attention, our work and our, our effort to letting his word abide in us pray that you would give us the desire and the ability to more and more do and pursue that which is of first importance, Father, which is knowing you and loving you and living for you. Father, I pray that for me. I pray that for my family. I pray that for this church. Father, may we abide in Christ and find great joy in him. We ask and pray this in his name. Amen.